0: depths of space conceal enigma greater than the imagination can conceive. One such mystery looms from beyond the infinite, to send a signal in an arcane tongue. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and white Russian, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's discussion covers 2010, the 1984 science fiction drama starring Roy Scheider, Helen Mirren, and John Lithgow, and the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. My guest is aspiring astronaut and DVD viewer Chris Arnsby, invited me to his personal control room in Tooting. Hello, Chris. Hello. Now, summer movie season is almost upon us, or it is upon us, in fact. The um, summer portion certainly is, yes. Yes. Well, we've had at least one major summer release so far. Although there have been quite a few more by the time the uh, listening world gets to experience this recording. But um, casting our minds back to blockbusters and ages past, we have the least likely blockbuster of 1984, the 17th highest grossing film of the year, <laughs> and the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, 2010.
1: I didn't know it was the seventeenth highest-grossing film of the year. Um, what what was beating it in '84? Beverly Hills Cop, Indiana you know, um, yes. Jones and the Temple of Doom, yeah. Ghostbusters, The Usual Suspects. In other words, no, yeah, right? that came out in '95. <laughs> <laughs> but Starman, probably. Yeah, I think actually you're right. I was uh, doing some very limited work, research on Wikipedia, and I think Starman was one of the films. There was another. Science fiction film, which came out around the same time, and again, its name completely escapes me now. But I think Life Force. It may <laughs> well have been Life Force. Yes. Oh dear. But certainly, two, of, of the the science fiction films about 2010, seems to have been the most successful one. But yes, it was kind of eclipsed by the more mainstream fare.
0: And I think it's because of that that it's been virtually forgotten. Yeah. Um, you and I both have copies on DVD. You had to order yours from America. Yes. I found mine in a second-hand shop, and it looks like uh, it lost a fight. (laughs) It's got the remains of a big sticker on the front. It's held together with cardboard, Um, and it's apparently released 15 years ago. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And when you watch the DVD, it's been formatted in such a way that the picture doesn't fill the screen. The picture Mm. fills a small rectangle in the middle of the screen.
1: Yes, it's that weird faux widescreen that used to be popular for a while. Um, until people started complaining. Yes until, yes, until people learned to care about that kind of thing, or bought, actually bought widescreen TVs. My version is double-sided, which means it's next to impossible to get it out of the box without actually getting <laughs> fingerprints all over the film. No, it's easy, watch this. Click. Oh, I see what you Oh, no, there we go. For the listeners at home. Oh, no, it did. Yes, congratulations. You're a lot better at it than I am. Or maybe you've just got more patience. Well, I've got pianist's fingers, that's fine. Yes. Pianist's. Yes, yeah, quite possibly. Whereas I, well, never mind what you don't, I... You don't
0: know your own strength. No, definitely not. He's like a titan. Yes. Now, I think 2010 is a perfect choice for cinema limbo, mm. but it was actually your idea. So yeah. What, uh, what, what? what brought that on?
1: I think the most obvious thing about it for me is that it's like the punchline to the jokes that you occasionally get, where somebody will talk about doing, you know, Casablanca too, or um, uh, I'm struggling now to think of blockbusters, but you know that idea that somebody the full Monty yeah, part two exactly, or the joke from Family Guy where they talk about how Stella got her, how Stella got her bleh how Stella got her groove back too you know as if you know, and and it's full of people saying things like girl you've got to get your groove back again but this is actually one of the few occasions when they they've done it you know they've taken possibly the most iconic film of the 60s i think yes i would, I would say so so if you want to think of a film that certainly sums up the late 60s and 1968 69 and psychedelia and all the sort of counterculture stuff that was stewing around at the time, it's very hard to think of something other than 2001. Maybe Easy
0: Rider? Yeah,
1: this is true. And there
0: has been a sequel to Easy yes. Rider.
1: <laughs> as
0: insane as that sounds, mm. and apparently it's unwatchably terrible and is made by a mm. who
1: lucked into getting the rights. But that's kind of. By all, by all rights, you start out, and you, somebody, somebody goes, I want to make a sequel to 2001. By definition, it should be terrible. 2001 was written, by, uh, was written by Arthur C. Clarke it was directed by Stanley Kubrick you just think there's no way they're going to be able to recapture that again but I've always kind of had a soft spot for it because it is the sequel that works I think it, it continues the themes of 2001 it wraps them up very nicely it provides an explanation as to what's going on
0: but, but without undermining the, no. way, the weirdness and the
1: mysticism of the first film. And in some ways, adding layers of weirdness and mysticism of its own. Mm. And at the same time, it's also a very good film in its own right. Uh, yeah, I, I've, so I've just. I've always had a real soft spot for it. And I'm also kind of baffled by the way it's been forgotten. And I don't know if that's because. It's not got a particularly big name director. It's not got anyone... I mean, it's got people in the cast that go on to do other things. So Helen Mirren, I think a relatively early phase of her career. Um,
0: I think by the early 80s, she was well-established as a mm. character actress.
1: You've got John Lithgow at the point when he was still...
0: John Lithgow had just been Oscar-nominated. Ah, yeah, yeah. And Roy Scheider, uh, who is the lead, had two Oscar nominations
1: by this Mm. point. And he's definitely... I mean, he's the star of the film, isn't He's built above he? the title. Yeah. Time. But it just... I don't know. For whatever reason, it seemed to fall into... Maybe it was just because it came out in the same year as Ghostbusters and Starman and other films, and it's just been overlooked ever since.
0: Well, I i think that to an extent its it fell victim to the blockbuster age, that by that point the m- mentality of studios to... Push for these big budget productions, these high concept productions, was squeezing out higher budget um, films with mm. an intelligent audience. There does seem to be a run of serious science fiction in the early 80s. Uh, films like Brazil, mm. Blade Runner. I know it's weird, Editor, that they all seem stopped with uh, Brazil, Blade Runner, and one that popped into my head, Brainstorm.
1: I don't think I've seen that The
0: Douglas Trumbull film,
1: Oh, OK. No, I seen um, that. which
0: um, <laughs> famously troubled in that Natalie Wood died during production and may or may not have been murdered.
1: Yeah, that's who's going to write the publicity for that film? That's not good. Well, exactly.
0: Um, and Christopher Walken's in it as the romantic lead, which is always dicing yeah. with danger. Hmm. When he's the most normal character in your movie, you know you're in trouble.
1: Yes. Yeah. I don't. I mean, because it is. It's playing around with some very big concepts, and I get the feeling. I. It's a shame, actually, that it hasn't been picked up by a company like... Uh, Net- Arrow. Arrow, yeah. Who's the company in America that used to release... They released, like, uh, versions of Life of Brian and things. They were quite... Well known for really putting in a lot, lot of effort to source extras and things like Criterion. that. Criterion, Criterion, that was it. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure it would really be in their wheelhouse. I know that um, I think it's Shout Factory. Yeah, has been releasing a lot of um, kind of genre pictures, a lot of John Carpenter movies. have had yeah. some deluxe Blu-ray treatments from them, I and I think it, I think uh, this would definitely be something mm. that they would like because it's it's more of a serious movie but it's again very much a genre piece. Yeah.
1: But there's a few occasions I mean there's a lot of sequences with voiceovers and stuff, and I'm not entirely sure how much of it was scripted and how much of it was added in an attempt to sort of make the events of the film clear. And of course that in itself is an example of how it's different to two thousand and one because you can imagine that Stanley Kubrick would have vigorously resisted any attempts to explain what was going on.
0: Well the movie is based on a book by Arthur C mm. Clarke. He did eventually write a sequel in the early 80s a couple of years before the movie came out. And the film the script was written by Peter Hyams mm. who also directs. Hyams did contact Kubrick uh, as a kind of say is this is this okay? Mm. Can I can, is it am I allowed to do this? And Kubrick essentially responded yeah, do what you like. But, <laughs> I mean, it's your movie. Do what you do what you want. But make sure that you're doing what you want to do and that you're making your own movie and you're not just, mm. you know, sculpting what you've done around something else or n- not telling the story that you want to tell. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's interesting as well that, again, Peter Hyam's attitude was very much, am I allowed to do this? As if, you know, he was making a sequel to Casablanca or something. You know, that, that feeling that, that just by even considering it, you're edging onto forbidden territory. Mm. And But it's very nice of two, of Stanley Kubrick to just say, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, it's not touching the original film in any way. No. Um, it wasn't you know, pushing that to circulation. Arthur C. Clarke was involved mm. in the writing of it, and he and Hyams had a long-running correspondence. Um, famously, it was one of the first... Examples, perhaps of um, teleconferencing because they were communicating via email in
1: 1982 yeah. I mean that just seems impossibly futuristic I know <laughs> it's, it's letters via uh, via phone line it's right. yes. kind of electric
0: telegram because Hyams was presumably based in Los Angeles and um, yeah. Arthur C. Clarke had retired and moved to Sri Lanka
1: yes um, yeah.
0: there is there a book of their correspondences that's been published. I don't know if it's still in print. Do mm. Have you heard of this? I've
1: heard of it. As I say, when I quickly breezed through Wikipedia this morning to do a little bit <laughs> of this, so that I could sound like I knew what I was talking about, they did many, And I, I, I'm interested to track the book down, but mm. by all accounts, in a classic example of new technology versus old technology, in order for the book to make the print deadline to appear before the film came mm-hmm. out the tr- the email stops somewhere around pre-production. Yeah. So, so they don't actually, by all accounts, they don't actually get into discussing the films it's been made. The only member of the cast that's been signed up is Roy Schneider. Schneider. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to be doing that a lot. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You struggle
0: with actors' names. Uh, yes, yeah.
1: It's very endearing. That's OK. I I like to pretend it's a quirk rather than just, you know, laziness. Um, <laughs> but, um yeah, so he was the only member of the cast that had been assigned to the to the film and they were in pre production. And it's you know, these days I suspect that the, the book could have gone a lot closer to the wire and would actually have included some details about the making of it. But if I can track down the copy, it sounds sounds quite interesting, it's something I'd like to have a look at.
0: Have you read the original novel?
1: Mm, yes, yeah. And there's as we get onto it, there's a couple of key sequences from the book which are omitted from the film. But I'm sure we'll come to those as, as we, we get on to them. We
0: will, I'm sure. The movie starts with a bit of a recap uh, for anyone who hasn't seen 2001 yes. or isn't aware of what happened. Uh, and it's framed as Haywood Floyd's report on the events on the moon and the discovery mission to Jupiter. Uh, Haywood Floyd was a character in the original movie, of course,
1: mm.
0: played by William Sylvester.
1: Yes, he does. T- I, sorry, I, it's been a long time since I've seen 2001. I was tr- struggling to remember who was in it and who wasn't in it. The compositors in it. Yes, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of those brilliant moments when you just it just catches you by surprise. Um, but I can't, is Hayward Floyd... He must be one of the characters on the moon, presumably. He's the one going on the the, the moon. Of the course, series. he is. Yeah, yeah. Of course, he absolutely.
0: And uh, he's sort of in charge of the investigative team on the moon that finds hmm. the monolith, and then he disappears from the movie after yes. about a third of the way through but um, he's the major car- He's the main character mm. in 2010 played by Roy Scheider and there is something that is I believe in the book and maybe I think the book of 2001 but it's not in the film and that is astronaut David Bowman's last transmission
1: before he disappears I'm, you know, I can't remember this you're talking about my god it's full of stars
0: yes I'm pretty sure that's in the book and
1: not in the film. It might be, because uh, it's certainly one of these things that's confused me, because it's, obviously it's a key point of the early sequences of the film. Mm. And I'm not sure So Obviously it was never said in 2001. Um, maybe it was in the book. That was the one place I didn't think to go and check when I was looking that up.
0: I recall that he has something of a monologue, as the, the pod he's in is approach the giant monolith floating in orbit around Jupiter. And, the la- and his last line is, "Oh, it's opening up, and oh, my God, it's full of stars." And then that's his transmission cuts out, mm. and they never hear from him again. And um, my notes say that's one element of the original movie that that 2010 ignores. I think in, in an attempt to sort of um, establish itself stylistically, the original movie features scenes that uh, include music or include dialogue, but never the set, never both.
1: No, they don't. scenes with
0: both music and dialogue
1: and actually that's one of the points where 2010 is a, sl- is a weaker film than 2001 Is it's almost a disappointment when every now and again traditional movie music yeah. kind of comes in and cuts in there's a whole sequence at the start when Floyd is, has made the decision to go off on the mission and he's saying goodbye to his family and there's a little montage and sort of sad piano music plays over the top and it Stanley Kubrick would have cut it.
0: <laughs> yes, he, yeah, he was never the sentimentalist. No. And we also, unlike 2001, we also get a full set of opening titles.
1: Yes, we do, don't um, we?
0: With a, what sounds like a slightly speeded up version
1: of Azul Sprach Zarathustra. Well, you know, the film's expensive. They probably wanted to run the titles a bit more quickly. <laughs>
0: um, but the actual film itself opens at dawn mm. in a radio telescope array and Floyd is rummaging around playing with screwdrivers and he's approached by a Russian who suddenly appears and we get a big set of exposition Mm.
1: explaining what's going on now and it's interesting because not just a Russian but a Soviet yes and that's the the, because this is very much a Cold War film Um, and in some ways that makes it a a nice twin of 2001 because two, a, acres of 2001 your TWA no longer exists um, who else is it? There's, there's Pan Am Pan Am, or is it Pan Am? That's the, it is Pan Am, is yes. it Pan Am that's taken them to the moon yeah, but obviously Pan Am no longer exists IBM is no longer the computing giant it once was, all that kind of thing yeah. um, and of course the Soviet Union has gone the same way as uh, as Pan Am so.
0: mm. They should. I mean, th- there are two other books in the series. Mm. So, um, if they are uh, adapted, it would be interesting to see what other defunct
1: brands that they'll include. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's a shame with the other two books. But... <laughs> it's like they go shopping in Woolworths. And... <laughs> yeah, or BHS now, yeah, absolutely. And they're all. Like...
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess I've just listened to it on my Microsoft Zoom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, updating their MySpace page and stuff. Um,
0: <laughs> Friends reunited. Oh yeah, yes. There's the monolith puts up his page, but the the profile picture doesn't recognise it.
1: Yes, yeah. It's just a just it's blank. A,
0: no, that's blank. No, it's not. That's what I look like.
1: Yes, and he keeps getting those annoying notifications that say things like "Your profile is only 20% complete. You want <laughs> to add more information? No.
0: I, <laughs> can't, I can't translate that into your feeble human alphabet." <laughs>
1: It's a shame with the other two, because it's twenty sixty three, isn't it? And that's the one where they go to Halley's Comet. Yeah. And three thousand and one, which I read, but I don't remember anything about. The main character but, in
0: three thousand and one is Frank Poole who is the other astronaut. Oh, from that's right. They retrieve his body and revive him,
1: and uh, it ties up the series rather well. Mm. Then, yeah, I don't remember a great deal. I mean, the sad thing is that. From my, that always seemed to me to be... It was Arthur C. Clarke moving towards the end of his career. At the same time, there was a... He'd, he'd written a book called Rendezvous with Rama, and he then wrote a, a few sequels to that, which also seemed to offer diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my feeling, of, particularly about 3001, was that it was somebody that was naturally you know coming to the end of their career. But I, I appreciate the fact that you know, he wanted to complete the cycle of storytelling... Yeah. But I don't necessarily think that the story as a whole was, would have been any weaker if it had just been 2001 and 2010.
0: Yes, I think the, uh, cinematically at least it's concluded mm. rather well. There is a nice kind of closed loop to the, the storytelling. Yes, But the the Soviet visitor explains about the, uh, the current state of the Russian and American missions back to Jupiter to find out what happened aboard the Discovery, that the American one is quite a long way behind the Russian one, and in fact that the orbit of the Discovery around Io, the the moon of Jupiter, is decaying in an eccentric fashion, and that the Russians will get there before it crashes, but the Americans won't.
1: Mm. And the Americans have the know-how to uh, rescue Discovery, and the Russians won't. So obviously what they have to do is uh, is join forces or, in, or have to convince everybody to allow them to join forces. Exactly. So Floyd goes to see his pal in Washington
0: and they sit on a bench outside the White House that you know it's Washington. Yes. And they talk about it. And his other guy says, well, when we finish talking, I've got to go in this building behind me and convince
1: people that you're right. Mm. And again, I mean, it's interesting because of the, the, this would have been in production 82, 83. 83, certainly. And they're, talk, and they're talking about a reactionary president in the White House and they're talking about you know, Cold War tensions. And it's as much about 1984 as it is about 2010. I don't think it's particularly subtle with its parallels at times. Oh, right? no. I mean, in 83,
0: famously, uh, <laughs> one of the several occasions we came very close mm. to nuclear war again. With the Able Archer yes. exercise mm. in uh, the North Atlantic where NATO was having a military exercise and the Russians thought that we were planning on firing at them and they were going to fire first.
1: Yes, which, which I think... A little bit dicey. I didn't know any about this at the time. I was more worried about whether Adam and the Ants were going to be releasing another single. But <laughs> they...
0: Sitting on the next bench from them is... Um...
1: Not in my version, because I was the pan the... and scan version. Oh! <laughs> Clark. But yes, I know who you're going to say, Arthur, yeah, Arthur C.
0: Clarke. Clark has a little cameo mm. uh, sitting on the next bench feeding the birds. And it makes their discussion about the president being a lunatic interesting because he has a second cameo later in the film on the front cover of Time magazine.
1: Yes, he does, doesn't he? Of course, it's some... Um... Stanley Kubrick is the Russian premier.
0: <laughs> yes. Because I mean... he just looks more Russian. Well, <laughs> actually, actually, I believe he was having of Russian-Jewish descent.
1: Uh, I don't know enough Sir, about Kubrick to say we I believe already.
0: so
1: so he, he did have sort of vague, he looked vaguely mm. mysterious and foreign but yes it's uh, it's just funny it's one of those things it, it's when you come back to the, the terrible presentation of the films on physical media mm. the fact that the original director at the time went to all this trouble to include a few little nods and it's immediately cut out by the clunky transfer from, from film to DVD <laughs> yeah
0: by a studio that doesn't care. Mm. Even even these horrible little cardboard things that they come in, click. So held together with like hope <laughs> and prayer. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's DVD packaging from the olden days when they didn't really know what they were going to be doing with them. Mm. But I mean, I I. I forget now if we've established this or not, uh, but you've got the Region 2 version, I've got the Region 1 version. Because I was going through a phase of buying Region 1 DVDs at the time because they frequently seem to be a little bit better than the Region 2 stuff. Um, and in the case of mine, I think it's got a slightly nicer cover, as you've already said, yeah. although you've got the right logo, I think. Where was no, my... you've got the right logo. Have I? Yeah. <laughs> you've got the rounded numbers and I've got the square numbers. right and I've obviously got a nice picture of the space baby on the front and <laughs> space
0: baby I've
1: got um
0: I've got a picture of the monolith floating around in the space and there's the discovery there as well mm. and uh yeah photoshop
1: 1.0 pretty much yeah and uh, and I think I've got a very brief feature about the making of the film and that's that's it because this, in both cases these are one of those DVDs that list interactive menus as a reason to buy it yeah and they are very interactive. You can go up, up and down and everything.
0: The thing is, they're so interactive but there's nothing to do with
1: them. No, sadly not. So I think we've got up to... Haywood Floyd has yeah. convinced his friend to convince the president to allow them to go into space with the Russians.
0: And he's taking a team of two others. Mm. The designer of The Discovery, Walter Kernow, played by John Lithgow, and the designer of HAL, the onboard computer that appeared to go crazy and kill everyone, Dr Chandra, mm. played by Bob Balaban.
1: Yes, who's one of those actors that's had an astonishingly long career, hasn't he? Just pops up unexpectedly everywhere.
0: I know. He um, he had a fantastic cameo in last week tonight with John Oliver recently, oh. where they were introducing all kinds of new mascots for government offices and government departments. So it was like like Smokey the Bear. So oh, you yes. like, You know, Dinky the the the, the dinosaur, like in one of them was. Bob Balaban as Bob Balaban
1: walks out just wearing a suit looking confused. Fair enough. I I, I happened to see Monuments Men a couple of weeks ago and he pops up in that as one of the art experts, essentially playing the same kind of part, really, the slightly grumpy, slightly weird man. It's just he's now forty years older or however long it is since nineteen eighty four
0: he's very good in Close Encounters of the Third Kind as well of course he is, he's in there isn't he uh, which he acts as François Truffaut's translator mm. both in the film and in real life oh. <laughs> because he was, the, he was the only person on the set who could speak French to any degree of proficiency fair enough he wrote a very good um, diary of the making of Close Encounters that was published which oh. I have, and is absolutely fascinating to read because it sounds like, like it was a complete nightmare to make was mm. an endless days spent looking up in the sky at wonder at nothing, yeah.
1: and
0: yes. having no idea what they were supposed to be doing or looking at. Just reacting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why Francois Truffaut didn't act very much. <laughs> Chandra is talking to his his own computer, Sal, who is he hopes going to help him figure out what happened with how. Did you recognise the voice of Sal?
1: I didn't. Um... I know that it's again in a deliberate contrast to how It's a female voice, but didn't yes. recognise
0: it. Uh, it's actually a, a famous actress under a pseudonym. In fact, Candice Bergen.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked up on that at all.
0: And um, he's going to shut Sal down and I think to reboot her, jigger about with her memory wafers or whatever, hmm. they, whatever they use. And he, she asks him whether or not she'll dream. And he says, yes, of course, all, all sentient beings dream. Which is... The, the the question of whether or not the artificial intelligence qualifies mm. living beings is referred to a few times in the story.
1: It's very... Uh, there's something... I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but it's the 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 language that the various artificial intelligence computers agree. They always sort of speak very uh, authoritatively, they'll say things like, I agree, and they'll use very sort of strong, affirmative words and statements, and it just kind of sets them apart a little bit from the the human characters that tend to waffle a little bit more. They do, yeah.
0: Um, (laughs) Floyd is getting ready to set out. I notice that in his home he has pet dolphins.
1: Yes. I mean, it's it 's not really clear when you watch the film, is it? It kind of looks like he lives on the edge of a dolphin area oh. i think in in the book, they live by the coast and they 've extended their house out over the sea and built a sort of a, a trapdoor so that dolphins can come and visit them oh. that 's not quite how it appears in the film there's a throwaway gag as well that the dolphins always turn up regularly at a certain time to be fed. The one time that they didn't turn up, a hurricane slammed into the coast, and so the next time they didn't turn up, I think he says that he packed his family into the car and drove away. <laughs> well, it,
0: it does prefigure the next time that Roy Shiner would be all at all at sea <laughs> uh, in uh, Sequest.
1: Oh God, I've forgotten about underwater
0: that. Star Trek series he did in the nineties, where he has a pet dolphin called Darwin, which can talk. Well, of
1: course, it, yeah, I mean. It, It was the 90s and it was science fiction, so what it needed was a cute talking thing. Ah, that was a... Yes. (laughs) Let's move on from Sequest.
0: A series that famously was improved by transporting everyone to an alien planet. Mm, well. (laughs) Do you think that Roy Schneider is
1: plausible? That's an interesting question, because I was watching this and I'm not sure whether he was quite right for the part... And I don't necessarily, mean, because he does a perfectly competent job, but there's yes. something about the generic... that I guess, when you're an actor, you, obviously you, you, you project elements of your personality into the role you're playing. And yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There were times when he didn't quite seem to be hitting the script, as you might expect. A scientist? I'm not, I can't really, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I know what you mean
0: he's always struck me in, ver- in his films as having a kind of very blue-collar mm. management. Yeah. So it's someone who's like worked their way into a position of moderate authority, who is respected by his employees mm. and also his peers, but has, hasn't lost touch with, you know, yeah. going for a hot dog at the ball game, yes. as is my understanding of America. Um, and you get that in The French Connection and in Jaws. He, he's a... He's a regular guy who's yeah. worked himself into a level of uh, responsibility and authority. And here he's a scientist, engineer, astronaut, and it seemed that's not quite the right no. fit.
1: He's very... I mean, uh, he plays him as very easygoing and affable. I kind of get the impression for some of the hints that are dropped in the script that maybe he should be a bit more driven, because the, one of the driving forces behind the American Mission is his guilt. Because he doesn't, he doesn't quite underst- He doesn't obviously doesn't understand what went wrong with the discovery mission, and he wants to know. And he's worried that it might be his fault. And he's been blamed for it. He, mm. he was publicly scapegoated for mm. the
0: discovery mission falling apart, which is why he was kicked out of NASA and is reduced to lecturing and fiddling with radio telescopes.
1: Yeah, I don't know whether actually. A, more, uh, a performance more like Dr. Chandra's might have been, somebody that with the slightly more rough edges and a little bit less easy going might have been a the, better fit The trouble there is that Chandra
0: is deliberately written as being kind of weird and alienating yes. whereas Roy Scheider is very easy to latch onto as a lead mm. because he's, ve- he's, he's he's not he's very easy going, he's very likeable Yeah. he's very prof- professional and he's sort of yeah, you can, you, the audience has no difficulty engaging with a character like that. Whereas Chandra, everyone everyone in the movie thinks that Chandra is a
1: weirdo. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's odd as well because, again, you keep coming back to 2001 where Kubrick did his best to file all the emotion out of the story completely. Yeah. So, Roy Scheider's performance... Scheider? Oh, right, Scheider, sorry, was, you were using the possessive, there. Oh, OK, yes, yeah. Um, Roy Scheider's performance is much more yeah it's you, it, it's you what the film needs but yeah. it's not
0: necessarily what the character should be yeah. within the world of the movie
1: and certainly compared to the Hayward Floyd of 2001 who he's all business we don't he's learn anything no, no, no he's him. A, yeah there's a
0: scene there's a scene of him talking to his daughter on um, the um, space phone
1: oh that's right where yes.
0: she asks for a bush baby for Christmas yes that was it and then he goes to use the zero gravity toilet and there's actually, there's a, a, an odd little sequence... He really does use a zero-gravity toilet, by the way, that's not a joke. Mm. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. In fact, it's, I think um, that's one of the nice sequences of the novelisation of 2001, where Arthur C. Clarke goes into not much more detail about the um, its physiological developments and, and experiments that needed to be done to make sure the zero-gravity toilets weren't distressing to you, to <laughs> But yeah, there's an odd little bit later on in the in 2010, isn't there, where they have to establish that it's the same character. So they're talking about he's talking to somebody about whether he, whether he's married, and he says, "Oh, I was married and I had a daughter, but she's now So she's 17 or what?" Oh yes, and now that she's re, he's
0: remarried and he has
1: a young son. Yeah, and I guess that's that's one of the more subtle attempts to try and just make some links and make it clear that these are actually the same two you know, these are two films in a sequence rather than just being I don't
0: know they're disconnected Mm -hmm. because although although Floyd has been recast the two best known characters from the original movie, they've brought back the original actors yes
1: it's an interesting th- idea, in a way, isn't it? Because you can
0: get away with it, because they're so iconic. You need to have Keir DeLay back as David Bowman, and you need to have Douglas Rain back as the voice of Hal. Yeah. No one remembers Hayward Floyd from the original movie. Yeah, Karl either, sure. Yeah, why not? He's, he's a big name, he's a good actor. Uh, we can put his name on the title and the studio will buy it. Great. That'll yeah. do. But we need
1: to get the voice of Hal.
0: But yeah, he, absolutely. The voice of Hal has to be right. You have to get David Bowman, because he looks a certain way. No one else can fit the the old smock that he has to wear later in the movie. We've already got all the designs for the baby based on it. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Um, The other thing I liked is the the presentation of the future, Mm. where it's a mixture of things that haven't really changed versus things that really have. So, like the architecture,
1: for example...
0: Hasn't really changed. Later on we see someone's apartment, and it looks like an 80s apartment.
1: I think there's a tendency to use curved edges rather than... So that windows are often, from memory at least, I think windows are often sort of oval or circular rather than being square. But that's kind of such a subtle thing that you don't always pick up on it, certainly. Um, And actually there's an attempt as well... With the Soviet technology, it's all a lot chunkier and a lot more buttons and screens. Mm. There's very different that there's. Whereas when you get on the Discovery, obviously it's all it, smooth, it's clean lines, lines yeah.
0: because it's cop- it, they've copied the original designs.
1: And in the sequence in the hospital, um, there's a very slight attempt to make the hospital at least look a bit like the interior of the Discovery. So there's an attempt to sort of keep technology on both sides consistent. Yeah, mm. but it's, there's there's one shot where. Hayward Floyd is sitting on a beach using a personal computer. Yeah. And it simultaneously works, and do, it, it works because obviously everybody's used to being able to take computers where they want to these days, but the computer's got a keyboard, which is like kind of suited now.
0: And, it's, and that, that computer is actually cannibalised from real computers. It wasn't a designed prop. Oh, right. So the screen is actually, I think, from uh, an earlier Apple, and, and it's got a separate hard drive that plugs in with one of those mm. big thick wires. Yeah. So it's all sort of real computer bits, but sort of, well, how would this work?
1: Yeah. It's like a big battery somewhere. Or... But yes, yeah, so, and, and again, it's something I remember when uh, The Phantom Menace came out. Um, this, sorry, this is going to get a bit nerdy, for which I apologise. <laughs> One of the disappointments for me of The Phantom Menace that it did was that it didn't convince that it was in the same universe as Star Wars, because obviously they updated the look of all the technology. So you're in this bizarre situation with the Phantom Menace where the technology looked more advanced than the technology of Star Wars. Which is which set was, which was made in the 40 past. Forty
0: years yeah.
1: later. Yeah, was set in the set in the future but made in the past. Yeah. And the nice thing about 2010 is there's never a moment when you look at it yes, it's it's packed full of technology which is closer to nineteen eighty four than the real two thousand and ten. But Again, it doesn't. There's nothing that that looks glaringly wrong compared to the world of 2001, and I think they uh, there must have been some fairly serious work going on behind the scenes with the design and stuff because mm. it does it does look it looks very good.
0: It does, yeah. But after this, we we jump to space, and we're approaching Jupiter on board the Alexei Leonov mm. with its captain Helen Mirren.
1: Yes. Doing a uh, what sounds like a reasonable Russian accent to me.
0: Yeah, I, I think her casting is. I mean, it was at a time where she didn't have the kind of persona that she has now. She's Helen Mirren, the, yes, a great actor. When well, she is a great actor, and of course, you know that she isn't herself Russian. She isn't. Yes, she is. Uh, now I'm more confused. Helen Mirren is Russian. Her parents are Russian, but she was okay. born and brought up in the UK. No, her birth didn't... name is Ilyana Miranov.
1: Didn't know that at all. OK, yeah. in that case... Which I thought, it was, that's why... Partly it ties in... Oh, yeah, she's yeah. playing a
0: Russian. Her accent isn't that good.
1: No, I thought I her accent was... So. I, well, uh, I've I, I, got no ear for accents at all. It sounds fine to me, but... Uh, yeah.
0: But inevitably, being the captain of a Russian craft, she's all business. Um, Floyd has woken up early out of hibernation because they're just passing Europa... Mm. The, one of the other moons, and there's something funny going on, because well, they've done some analysis as they've been passing by, and there's something moving around underneath the ice crust.
1: Yes, they think they found life, don't mm. they? Yeah. And this is one of the. Have you read the novelisation of two thousand and ten? It's not a novelisation. It's not a novelisation. Uh, yeah, I have the, read book. the book. Yeah. Yeah, because this is one of the key differences between the book and the film. Because in the book, there's a whole subplot involving a Chinese spaceship, which Ah. lands on Europa, Um, and the lights from the spaceship are so powerful that they overwhelm the sun, and the thing under the ice goes berserk and actually grows through the ice and smothers the Chinese spaceship. And that's so that so in the in the case of the book, they have much more dramatic proof that there's life on Europa. Uh, and it destroys this Chinese spaceship. Um, In fact, I think in the book, it has been a few years since I've read it, I think in the book it's almost more of a three-way race because you've got the Russians, the Americans and the Chinese are all desperate to go out to Jupiter to find out what's going on out there. I mean, it's, it's nicely ambiguous, that sequence with the probe that they send down to the surface of Europa, because the impression I get from it is that the monolith let's call the aliens behind it the monolith in the absence of knowing what else to call them they obviously want people to know that there is life there so they make sure that the probe gets down and they just have a chance to see it before the probe is flicked back into space and all the records are erased and i as much as you can project any sort of Motive onto the aliens in this. I got the impression that they wanted them to at least see it, but they didn't want them to go any further than that.
0: Yes, um, it does send a a flash to Jupiter, mm. a sort of bolt of energy of some kind. That the aliens do not uh, sort of do inform humanity. There is something on Europa, mm-hmm. but leave it alone. Yes, just keep your distance, as they say later on. And in fact, Floyd does um, make a connection between the between the monolith and Europa because they, I think, they figure out that the energy bolt sent to Jupiter was straight at the giant monolith that's still hanging oh, around there. Yeah. But uh, the the next stage of their mission is aerobraking, mm. which I didn't quite understand how this was going to work in a physics
1: sense. I think it's just a variant on the heat shield technique. I, I, I've no idea about this, but being Arthur C. Clarke, I'm pretty sure you can guarantee that he either ran the numbers himself or he knew somebody that ran the numbers and said that it was a viable technique. But it basically just involves deaccelerating through the atmosphere, through the very outer edges of the atmosphere of Jupiter. I think it's a beautiful sequence. Um, yes. Considering that it was made in 1984... It looks the special effects in this film, I think, are, are astonishingly good, oh. and that's a lovely little sequence. It, in, a, in an odd sort of way, it reminded me of the destruction of the USS Enterprise in Star Trek Three. Oh, um, same year. Yeah, which yeah, where it for, and actually to the extent that I kind of got the two films mixed up, and I was waiting for a shot of the burning uh, Leonov as it leaves the the trail behind it as its heat shield burns up. I was waiting for a shot of that kind of through the atmosphere of Jupiter with a musical sting over the top, and it confused me when that shot didn't appear. And I realise now that what I'm thinking of is a, a very, very similar <laughs> moment that was actually from Star Trek Three.
0: <laughs> Everyone braced themselves as they going through this very hairy manoeuvre, and one of the Russian astronauts comes into Floyd's quarters yes, I... to cuddle up with him, because I think everyone's worried that if this goes wrong... We're just going to instantly vaporise.
1: I can't remember what her job was. Was she the... One of them was described as a meteorologist, I think.
0: I can't remember.
1: Yeah, but she's in the unfortunate position, as is Floyd, of not having anything to do. Yeah. um, Except sit around and wait, yeah. But um,
0: with the manoeuvre successful, uh, Kurnow and Chandra are woken up. And their first job is to go over to the Discovery hmm. which is revolving on its central axis and uh, switch it back on again unfortunately <laughs> Kurnow, even at the mere concept of going through this manoeuvre, has a massive panic attack ah,
1: it's I, I've, I did a parachute jump once and that thing of voluntarily stepping out of the open door of a plane I actually kind of had flashback, there's a moment when he, he's standing with his back to the door of the Leonov and he's, he has to step out. And he had the same expression on his face that I imagine I had on my face as I went out of the door of the plane. He's, it's very, I, I've only really got memories of John Lithgow in um, Third Walk from the Sun. <laughs> and, it, and, and all the later films where they give him lots of money to give a John Lithgow-type performance where he goes over the... T- you know, like, um, what's the Schwarzenegger mountain cliffhanger? Sylvester Stallone. Yes, it is. Oh dear. Um, where where Lithgow plays the most evilist man in the universe. Yes, yeah. uh, because he kills a rabbit at one point, I believe, doesn't he? Um, oh, what a dear! I know but what an absolute monster. Um, and it's odd to go back and see. He's actually he's a really good actor. He is. Um, I shouldn't be surprised for a man that had what did you say two Academy nominations.
0: Um, just the one at oh. this
1: point uh, for The World According to Garp
0: okay. uh, Roy Scheider had two for The French Connection and All That Jazz oh, okay. where he is cast as Bob Fosse the um, musical choreographer director again wildly against time yeah
1: yeah, that does seems
0: yeah the, you know the guy who is the tough cop in, in The French Connection and the tough cop in Jaws let's cast him as a musical choreographer Absolutely. Apparently it worked. Yeah, yeah. But um, Kernau is assisted on his way by one of the Russians called Max. Yes. The who nice. is the nicest he's... Russian I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. He's a really nice, friendly guy mm. who talks him through the whole thing. Um,
1: and but... without giving anything away, but you put... naturally he's doomed.
0: Yeah, he's just too nice. Yeah. He's too good for this world.
1: Yes. Um and it's, again, it's a, it's a terrific sequence. Um, some lovely... The, the shots of the surface of Io from Orbit, I I don't know whether they were using pictures from... Um, uh, Voyager? It would have been Voyager at that point, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: There was another one, wasn't there? Another probe mm. that went around that area.
1: There was... Um, yeah, and this, again, I apologise for my pronunciation. There was one called Huygens, but I think that was a lot later because there was one that actually landed a probe on the surface of Io. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, but I think I think that's what I'm thinking of is Voyager.
0: Yes, it sounds right. Yeah. Seems that it would have been Voyager because it
1: shot through. I think it shot through the Jupiter system on the way out to uh, Neptune and all those places. Mm.
0: And then um, the yes. robot aliens caught it. and Made itself aware.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's going to cause no end of trouble in a few centuries.
0: It's going off on tangent. Did you? I think it's in one of the um, Star Trek novels that it stated that eventually the the aliens that elevated Voyager to its state of awareness were actually the Borg.
1: Okay, I'm not convinced that makes any sense no, within no. the Star Trek universe because that's not that doesn't that's not sound a... that the
0: Borg would do. No,
1: no, that's. That's, that's really weird
0: I know it's just, well yeah they're, they're like kind of machine people yeah but they're not I mean that's I mean that's um, Star Trek the motion picture is very heavily influenced by 2001 yes, because they yes. didn't want to go down the Star Wars route mm. which run it because that's exactly what the Star Trek movies are doing now and it's making them more and more generic yeah.
1: and anonymous but the, in the same way that there's there's whole chunks of um, Star Wars that owe a debt to Star Trek so it seems kind of odd that they was yeah but because there's there's a sequence, isn't there, where Spot goes inside Vija, and it's he basically you get a five minute light show, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the it's the um
0: it's the Stargate sequence mm. again.
1: But slightly less interesting.
0: I think there's a lot to be said for Star Trek motion picture. Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, the, have you seen the, the the later director's cut? No,
1: I can't say I have. It's the all. one
0: that's out on DVD. I'm just looking at your DVD shelf to see if I can see any Star Trek. Uh,
1: only the TV series at the moment. Although oh. I sh- should get around to picking up the Wrath of Khan.
0: Well, the um. You'll be pleased to hear that the uh, Blu-rays are of significantly inferior quality to the DVDs in terms of contents.
1: Of course, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because uh, it's Paramount, then. Yeah. and it's
0: like, yeah, yeah. If it's got a, if it's about space, then people will buy. It doesn't matter if we just release any old garbage. Yes. But the um, I assume that it's the same director's cut release of static The Motion Picture that's available on Blu-ray. Mm. Um, Robert Wise, years later, I think when he was well into his eighties, was given some money to tidy it up and finish the visual effects and just do, mm. do some CGI here and there. And the result actually works extremely
1: well. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those films that I've never kind of gone back to because I just found it very, very boring. And my tastes in Star Trek lean much more towards The Wrath of Khan. You know, that to me is Star Trek, not mm. this faux 2001 that everybody seemed to be aiming for initially. Well,
0: that's that's what I really respected about the motion picture, is that they could have gone the easier route mm. of making it lots of action and space battles and things but no, said so I no we're going to do a story that has intellectual weight that feels more like the TV show but on a much much bigger scale because I was I mean actually mm. I will say this it feels more like Space 1999 yes that's I mean, exactly you, what I was going to say we spoke about this before we started recording briefly because I was trying, I'm trying to hoik my <laughs> spare copy of Space yeah. 1999 series one that it's basically a much more slower paced intellectual Star Trek mm. and I enjoy that I think more than the original Star Trek although yeah. I do like the Star Trek movies
1: yeah whereas because I'm a philistine I prefer series two. I suppose 1999 I like that friend. you like
0: yeah you like because I like the first series where it's kind of Weird and philosophical, and in the second series, there's one episode where after ten minutes, everyone's transported back to medieval Scotland.
1: Well, oh, of course, Why and there's a woman I? who
0: can change into an animal.
1: You see, I mean, this is you. You, you, say, you say that the first series of 2000, uh, 2001, the first series of nineteen ninety nine, it's all dates. Um, is uh, philosophical to me? It's just people staring out of windows, slack jawed, and not doing it. They're, they're not doing anything. They're just watching. <laughs> Sound more like Close Encounters. Yeah, this is true. You know, I can't remember. Oh, here we go. But I I might as well say this now. While I remember the other significant omission from the film, and I think it occurs in the hour-breaking sequence, is that um, the Leonov launches a probe down into Jupiter's atmosphere, and it's got a camera on it. And they watch this probe descend to it, and they realise that there's life on Jupiter. And the reason that's in the book is because it feeds back into something that happens later on. Mm. Um, it basically illustrates the nature of the decision that the monolith has to make about who lives and who dies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they discover that Jupiter, Jupiter has also got life on it, weird, like cloud aliens or something. Mm.
0: But um, they, they get all the discovery. Which is actually, another note that I made, the plot of 2010... It does feel slightly oddly paced in that mm. we're racing through the story quite quickly, but then we have these set pieces that are at a very slow pace, mm. like the the probe going down onto Europa, the spacewalk to the Discovery. Yeah. They unfold at a very deliberate, um, methodical pace, partly for mood and atmosphere, but it's racing through the story as quickly as they can. Yeah,
1: and I don't know as well whether... Um, Obviously, with something like the space walk across to the Discovery, there's an attempt there to again echo 2001 because mm. you've got the the soundtrack is just people breathing. Yeah. Um, but yes, it is an oddly placed film, and and it's um, it's a very faithful adaptation of the of the source novel. Yeah, um, and it, it makes it 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 turns what could have been quite
0: stodgy into mm. something very cinematic. Peter Hines yeah. is a very underrated director.
1: I was surprised actually. as well to see that he's also credited as director of photography.
0: Yes, that was that was a regular. Uh, it was it was his only gimmick as a filmmaker. Oh, right Is that he was also usually his own director of photography, okay. as well as in this case being writer, producer, mm. and director of the actual movie. Um, but if this was his third major sci-fi movie in mm. only a few years. I actually looked at him because I've, I've seen his name over and over again. I know nothing about the man. No, his films are seem to be generally competently made, but like isn't that like. Sort of programmer movies from old Hollywood, and that they're, they're well made, mm. but there is nothing personal about
1: them. You wouldn't look at it and go, "Yes, this is a Peter Hyams film." No, he, he made uh, Capricorn One. Did he? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that.
0: Which he also wrote. Okay, it so was an original script. It's a great movie about mm. um, a uh, faked Mars mission, Outland. Yeah. Um, he would go on to uh, direct. End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, that's right. Yes. Arnold Schwarzenegger versus the Devil. Uh, he's kind of dropped off the map rather since then, unfortunately. Hmm. But uh, I always regarded him as just being a safe pair of hands. Yeah, he's he's a very
1: workmanlike director,
0: isn't he? Oh, I know one thing he did. The film he did after um, End of Days was The Sound of Thunder, which was notoriously. A very troubled production and a major bomb. Oh, oh it's based I can't on Ray Bradbury's short story about oh, about the um, sound of thunder. <laughs> yes, the one about going back in time to, to yes, hunt yeah. dinosaurs, but someone steps off the path and steps on a butterfly, and they come back to the present day and time is yeah. going wrong.
1: I've I've seen that. It's dreadful. Yeah, um, it's, it's. I saw a Polish DVD of it. Yeah. I would never have. I it's, never would have drawn any connection between that and 2010. Actually, exactly, because there's
0: never any identifying yeah. markers in his movies. Just the fact that he does his own cinematography, mm. and he's a perfectly competent cinematographer. But again, he's good at his job. But it's like, yep, yeah, 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 it's five yeah. o'clock, right, knocking off time. Okay, yeah, nothing personal brought to it. Just no, a, a bit ability.
1: No, you... ability to spare, but no feeling you can't imagine him forcing anybody to do 70 takes of a sequence because they're not closing a door naturally or something
0: exactly yeah. and that's, that's the big difference I think mm. between this and 2001 2001 is a film with this huge controlling mind yes. behind it of Stanley Kubrick who is imposing every himself and everywhere and here Hyams even though he's writer, producer, director, cinematographer saying yeah I'm, I'm mm. happy with that yeah, but, yeah, no it has to be exactly this way or we will do it again no, this is fine. This 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 is exactly as good as I can expect from you. <laughs> yes, yes. They get on board the Discovery, and there's a nice reversal where Max, mm. somewhat riskily, and, it, and the scene <laughs> reminded me of Prometheus, uh, lifts up the visor on his spacesuit to test the air.
1: Yeah. Well, I think they, the, there's no reason why it wouldn't work. I mean, they've established that the, pr- the pressure is fine. Yeah. It's just incredibly cold. I mean, I'm, again... I'm inclined to give Arthur C. Clarke the benefit of the doubt on a, a lot of these things. If he's decided that somebody can breathe air at a hundred degrees below,
0: I don't think it's even remotely that cold.
1: No, I think that actually they only estimate that as the temperature, yeah. It turns, don't they? Out, it
0: turns out to be very cold but breathable.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but he notices that there is a very unpleasant yes. smell, and he immediately starts panicking and thinks it's decaying bodies. But it's Kerner who talks him down. Yeah. And says, "Well, no, there's we've we've checked. There's no there aren't any bodies on here it's food in the galley that's gone off yeah it's, li- it's literally meat not people so it's, it's fine calm down and so there's a nice little and that establishes that really yeah. nice close friendly relationship which won't last long no
1: meanwhile on earth <laughs> yes.
0: war is brewing
1: yes it's uh, Honduras isn't it it's basically the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis but, it, but in
0: Honduras yeah. this time yeah and this is this is in the background. I think it's such a major element in the movie, but mm. we only ever, we're only ever told about it.
1: Yes, we are aren't we, Again, it's funny how the memory plays tricks on you with these things. I thought at one point I remembered a sequence where they watched a news report that had, obviously not live, but when they get sent mail packages from Earth, I thought one of them included news footage, and I'm. I'd convinced myself that there was a sequence where they talk about a ship being destroyed, and I thought you saw that played out on the screen, but you don't. No, it's just that yeah. it's Floyd's contact on Earth saying, yeah, this
0: is, this is going on and it's terrible. Yeah. Whilst Hal is being revived by Chandra, Floyd explains to Colonel that he has set up a failsafe with his little tiny pocket calculator, which must have been absolutely cutting-edge... I think in it United probably Ford, was, ..this yeah. tiny little thing, and that he can uh, remotely lobotomise Hal if it turns out that he's actually going to go crazy and kill everybody. Yes. And with the Leonov and the Discovery now kind of working together, they pilot the ships towards the giant monolith. And the shot that we then have of... This gigantic two-kilometer-long mm. black slab hanging over the ships—it reminded me of Salvador Dalí's painting of Christ of St John on the Cross.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't remember that, all that image
0: thing. of Christ crucified and, you, and hanging down like this with his face away from the viewer, oh, okay. looking down onto a lakeside scene of a fisherman. Does that ring a bell?
1: Mm, I'm not great on painting. It's this
0: of this image of great power and control mm. looming down over something else. Yes. It really reminded me of that. Yeah, a, quite a painterly
1: image. Well, it's, it's interesting the way that they've chosen to do it as well with the monolith looming, because I suppose that's all, maybe that's also the image that, that lends itself to the best sort of composition on the screen. I'm just trying to imagine what it would look like if the monolith was at the bottom of the frame. It might just look like the two spaceships were hanging over a hole or something. So it might not work as well.
0: Well, but al- it, also, it puts the monolith in a position of power, Yes, basically. yeah. And we know that it's, it is it is an unimaginably mm. powerful entity. So giving it that... Honor, and it
1: dwarfs the two spaceships yes. as well. Oh, it's a terrific. I mean, again, unfortunately, my... I don't know if it's that the print quality is not great... Or whether I'm. It's just... not great, it's no. garbage. You kind of squad, And so basically there's, there's a sort of there's a black shape on the screen, but I'm sure that if somebody, if somebody was to do a nice Blu ray intent, I'm sure it would look fantastic. Dear Arrow. Yes. Please release this film. Yeah, with a commentary from anybody that's around that can still talk about it.
0: Alan uh, Mirren, Bob Balaban,
1: yeah. you know, Peter Himes is still around.
0: Yeah. Uh, who else?
1: I, I, a fair chunk of people...
0: And Keir Delay is still around. And yes, I, think I think Douglas Rain is still alive as well.
1: Have you seen the pictures of... Um, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name because I will get it wrong. Keir... Delay. Delay. Um, now, compared to the pictures of him in the old age mocha from 2001... Yeah. It's astonishing. He and looks it, the same. It's, fr- it's But again, it's a tribute to the work that they put in at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. There's another nice shot... The other guy that... Who was the guy that played the other astronaut in 2001? Gary Lockwood. Gary Lockwood, that's it. Because he's in uh, When No Man Has Gone Before, the first episode of
0: Oh, yes, so yes. Star-
1: Sorry, the, the second the first, the first, pilot. The f- oh, the first... Well, yes. Yeah. The first Captain Kirk episode of Star Trek. But he was friends with a director of Star Trek called Ralph Sinensky. And there's a lovely picture that Ralph Senensky took of Gary Lockwood as an old man, watching himself in Where No Man Has Gone Before, as a young man, and just the two people on both sides of the screen, one young and one old. It's a lovely photograph.
0: Wow. So how come he's in old age makeup there, then?
1: Oh, no, he's... Sorry, in my part... Oh, I see. No, it's... It's just him. him, It's him him as an old man. Yes, yeah, Yeah, it's him now. It's a contemporary photo. It's a relatively contemporary photo.
0: Right. Max goes in one of the little pods from Mm. The Discovery to investigate the monolith. And what with him being a redshirt, it ends badly.
1: Yes. It's not 100% clear. He gets caught out by Bowman coming back to Earth, doesn't he? I think yeah. that's what's happening. So it's not that he doesn't go through the Stargate. So, so Max is kind of the forgotten character in the whole series, isn't he? Because, as you're saying, in 3001 they resurrect Frank Paul mm. and the only person that nobody ever thinks of is Paul Max, so he's presumably just floating around someone's well, no, face
0: I'd I assume that he was caught in the, in the blast and that he, he and the pod were vaporised
1: possibly yeah yeah I suppose so I,
0: I, I, was, I, mean, I was hoping that the same thing had happened to him that happened to Bowman
1: yes that's my hope as well was that I, I hoped he'd gone through the Stargate but we never but, hear about him
0: again no nah. so um, but yes Bowman appears on earth mm. to his widow on television and he says that he he wants to see her again. It's, it's very sweet. It he's, he still exi- He still exists as a human intelligence, mm. even though he's evolved far beyond anything that resembles humanity. Yes. And he just wants to see her again and say goodbye and tell her that he's fine wherever it is that he yes, is. Yes,
1: beyond the infinite. Mm, um, so. It's very unfortunate. I think they've... I'm not sure whether it's a quirk of the lighting or a quirk of, again, my copy, but there's a kind of a glow that comes out of his eyes occasionally while he's talking to his wife on the TV screen. And it's just one of those moments when, if it's intentional, I kind of want to go, please don't do that, because it looks like it might have been put on to sort of indicate that he's got infinite power, and it just looks a bit stupid. So I'm kind of hoping it's an accident of lighting rather than somebody thought they were being really clever by putting this subtle effect on.
0: Well, if... Of course, if it was someone doing an effect, it would be Hyams himself as mm. he was director of photography. Um, and this would come a year after Blade Runner did exactly that with that weird little lighting trick on the actors playing
1: replicants. Oh. And sometimes their
0: eyes shine gold slightly.
1: Okay, yeah, I don't remember that. It's been a, been a while since I've seen Blade Runner. you watched Blade Runner every yeah. Week. <laughs> but yeah,
0: everyone everyone who's a replicant, their eyes shine gold very slightly, including in one shot out of focus, Harrison Ford.
1: Oh, right. Oh, significant.
0: Yeah. Harrison Ford is a replicant of the runner. Hmm. There's no two ways about hmm. it. But um, Max's death has thawed the relations between yeah. the Russians and Americans because you know, he, was, yeah. he was their crewmate and you know, the Americans were really going to like him. And there's a really, again, lovely detail that's never explicitly referred to. Um, Colonel wears Max's cap for the rest of the movie. Yeah,
1: I didn't certainly didn't pick up. It on sort that. of this slightly shapeless yeah. black hat. just hmm. uh,
0: Because he was his he was his yeah. pal. I think that's, and it's it's never referred to in dialogue. He just starts wearing it, and no one comments on it.
1: Yeah, no, it's a nice, that's an incredibly nice touch. Yeah. Chandra
0: starts getting to work on bringing Hal's higher brain working again, and they figure out how it is that he broke. Mm because he was programmed not to tell the astronauts on the original mission about the monolith. And that required him to lie, which he can't do. Yeah. And so I'm not quite sure how it works, but they made the job from him not knowing how to lie to becoming paranoid. Yes. I'm not sh- I
1: don't I understand
0: think that somehow. I think
1: the logic behind it is that it, as it became increasingly difficult for him, because he wanted to talk to Bowman mm-hmm. and Paul about the mission but couldn't tell them about a key part of the mission. It, in his head, it became easier for him to kill the crew and complete the mission himself than to continue lying. Um, and, it, yeah, it just it pushes him into, I don't know, paranoia. Yeah, um,
0: and as a result, he killed everybody.
1: It's a very satisfying explanation. Yes. It, um, it, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, because you would... If you were setting setting down to write a parody of a sequel, you would want to do something that sucked all the mystery out of the first film and explained everything to the nth degree. Right. And this, the idea of explaining why Hal goes mad in 2001 is exactly the kind of thing that you might think, well, that's, you know, it's stupid, there doesn't need to be a reason. So, But it works. I, I'm, I'm really... I'm really pleased by the fact that it, it wraps that up very satisfyingly. It's a, it's a very, very good example of how a sequel adds something without, you know, it ex- it, without subtracting anything from the original film.
0: Yes, I agree. Bowman is still on Earth and he visits his mother mm. who's in a nursing home and uh, he brushes her hair.
1: Again, it's a really nice sentimental sequence and it's the first thing that Stanley Kubrick would have put a red pen isn't yeah. it? It's,
0: yeah, it's, it, it's Bowman saying goodbye to his mm. humanity visiting the people who are most important to him just as a final I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm okay wherever, wherever I am whatever age I look mm. like I'm going to be all right in Central America, things are getting worse. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And to the point where the Americans are actually ordered
1: off the lay and have to go a live on the discovery. <laughs> yeah, and that can't be... Regardless of how well Dr. Chandra reassures you that he's fixed the computer, that's got to be a source of concern, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a bit like living in a house that's powered by Windows 10 or something. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> oh, don't talk to me about Windows 10. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Okay.
0: I had to... Um do a hard reboot of my computer the other
1: day to um, get rid of Windows 10 wow ok sorry but it is just that kind of thing it doesn't matter how much the head of Microsoft reassures you that it's going to be fine you're, you're it's not, not it's rubbish yeah. it are not work gonna at t- all mm. but at so far at least it hasn't tried to kill you or recreate Demon Seed or whatever that well
0: would. I I'd be fascinated to find out how it plans on impregnating
1: you. <laughs> it's best not to ask
0: Robert Vaughan and his robot wheelchair
1: i just say if Robert Vaughan turns up move
0: would anyway. I watched Superman three the other day. <laughs> While he's working in the cockpit of the Discovery, Floyd gets a message, mm. and the message says, "And how is how is relaying this?" In his very help, he's being helpful. Yes, he's just trying to explain as he goes. Um, that this message says, you, "You have to leave in two days," mm. and Floyd says, "Well, we can't. Well, you know, for no other reason, our launch window to get back to Earth isn't for thirty days. It's no, no. You have to leave." in two days no later well yeah. how why should I listen to you It says I was David Bowman mm. tell tell Curnow to stop messing around House oh. Hal says oh it's not Curnow he's, 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 he's I'll swear to you something else well how should I believe what you're saying then says, oh, the message says turn around
1: and that's a classic like horror film, and it comes yeah. out of nowhere, but it works really well because it's exactly the worst possible thing that you could say to that moment, <laughs> not it? It's again, it the, the dread. Um, it's very like The Shining. It's yeah, it's really, it's a lovely little sequence. I really like that bit. And, then, and the
0: look on Childers' face thinks, oh, <laughs> this is going to be weird. Yeah. And he turns around, and it's Bowman mm. in his spacesuit.
1: Yes, and then he, uh, so he follows him through to the... Uh, the Podbay pod bay, that's it, yes.
0: And they, they talk. And Bowman says that he understands the whole process that's going on now. Mm. And that they have to leave in two days. They cannot stay any longer than that. As it, between each cut, he's changing age. Mm. So he suddenly gets very, very old and then he gets back to young age again, and then finally he turns back into the space baby.
1: Yes, and that's the one shot I don't think that works. I think the rest of it's really nice. It cuts between him and Floyd, and it works really well. But there's just something about the shot of the space baby. I'm not sure... It's the one time, I think, when the attempts to, to build the links between 2001 and 2010 breaks down. I, it's It's more comic than... I think it it's meant to be. Yeah. yeah, it's a shame. It's the one moment that really doesn't work, I think.
0: We should say, I mean, technically it's called the Star
1: Child. Is it? But oh.
0: It's much more fun to call it the Space Baby.
1: I'm on and off for years I've been referring to it as Space Baby. Moon, moon Toddler. Yes, yeah.
0: So, um, having been convinced by the crazy alien thing mm. that's happened, just appeared to him, um, <laughs> Floyd barges back onto the yeah. alien and says, look. I just saw a crazy alien and he says we've well, got to go yeah. so you better believe me <laughs> and they come up with a scheme mm. to leave early using the discovery as a booster rocket detach that from the leonov when it's exhausted the fuel and that will help them get back more quickly mm-hmm. just uh, and it's not really quite clear at the time but I at that point, they look out of the window and they realise the model has gone.
1: Yeah, it's it's an odd moment because it's kind of thrown away, isn't it? And it doesn't, it's not as effective as it perhaps could have been because, as you say, basically, Floyd looks out the window and goes, oh, it's gone.
0: Exactly, and it took me a moment to realise what he meant. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I thought they were referring to the next bit where for some reason they're looking at Jupiter in a microscope or something and that's oh, a bit of it has gone black there.
1: Yes, yeah. It's a space telescope. It's a space, yeah. Well, yeah. it's a regular telescope, yes, really. but in space.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they they zo- they zoom in on the the black bit, and they see that it's thousands of little mm. monoliths that they're replicating, and that they're sucking in the whole planet.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And how long until all of the it's the whole planet is consumed by monoliths?
1: Well, it's not consumed. It's going to be two days. It's not consuming them. I mean, this is. It's never really made clear, but my understanding from the book is that it's increasing the mass... Because it, because the monoliths are doubling in size, it's increasing the mass of the planet to the point where it collapses in on itself and becomes a sun. But, it, yeah, the way they talk about it, and actually the way it's shown on screen, it looks more like it's being eaten. Yes. Um, and this, again, is... I think there's a bit of voiceover over the top, isn't there, to try and clue the audience in on what's going on. Yeah, it's it's... Not clear that is
0: a problem. In, in, in compressing a you know, novel of significant yes, yeah. length down to a movie that's an hour and fifty-one minutes, mm. you've got to cut some corners here and there. So they now have to re- they realize, well, if we're using Discovery as a booster rocket, then that means we're going to have to leave it behind, which means Hal is going to get left behind. Mm. Who's going to draw the short straw and tell him? how is he going to react
1: yeah. <laughs> and it's the nice thing is actually that it's where Hal becomes a character in his own right because everybody is treating Hal like a work colleague that's had some kind of breakdown and everyone's tiptoeing around him and not sure how he's going to react mm. and it makes him very, and, and of course Hal is only ever charming and willing to help but as you say in that whole sequence where he's having the conversation with Floyd and relaying the messages to him there's something sinister about it but it's the, you know it's the audience putting their own interpretation on that scene because Hal is just he's just passing on the message. Exactly he's that. not
0: even he's not he says well where's this coming from? Is it uh, I don't know. Hmm. Is it what is it voice people? I don't know. Yeah. He says I don't understand. Neither do I. Dr. Yeah. Floyd. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only a supercomputer. Yes. Yeah. So Chandra is the one who goes to talk to him, mm. and again they try they kind of avoid the subject and he's trying to not tell him we're leaving you here yeah and eventually they just flat out tell him the truth yes so no, it's for the good of the bishop for the good of us we're going to have to leave you behind and it's you know, chances are no one's going to come back for you and the person says I understand mm. okay because it's Hal is never at fault it's only his program yes. that's at fault yeah he's, he's the sort of misunderstood hero of it in that he's only ever trying to help.
1: Yeah, yeah. Poor little... Yes. ...scary one-eyed machine he is. Well, I remember years ago I used to have... uh a book, I think, called An A to Z of Monsters. It was published by Armada, so it gives you some (laughs) idea of how long ago this book... And obviously it had, like, werewolves and basilisks and um, manticores and things in it, but it also listed in various... So the Daleks were in there. And Hal was listed as a monster. Yeah, and he was described as a murderous computer. And in retrospect, that's not really fair. He was never... I mean... okay, yes, he, he killed some people, but I think... It, the, the nice thing about 2010 is it kind of reclaims the character. He's not a murderer. He's somebody that was it's, pushed into a nervous breakdown. It's, as if, it's like he is in some way on the autistic spectrum mm. because he can't cope
0: with the idea of lying. Yeah. And his response was to have a breakdown and th- he processed that information by having to kill people because that was the only way he could deal with yeah. the corner that he was forced into. Yeah. so it's diminished responsibility yes, on his yeah. partner because he was given incorrect information by people who should have, should have by people who should have known better
1: mm. but yes uh, so and now he's
0: sort of recovered as you say being treated like a work colleague who's had a breakdown yeah. everyone's sort of being cautious and nice and when they finally just tell him the truth and they're honest with him and they explain why they're doing this thing which is going to kill him mm. say well it's for the best yeah. you know, the, everyone else will get home and they'll all be fine and I'll be here, and I'll die. But you know, I'm not. It's not going to hurt much. So. Mm.
1: And then, of course, he asks Doctor Chandra if he will dream.
0: He does, and Chandra says he doesn't know. Yeah. Which is sad. I think it's, it's oh, poor old Hal. We mm. <laughs> just feel sorry for him because yeah. he he draws the the cybernetic short straw.
1: Yes yeah absolutely Um, but it's interesting as well I mean Dr Chandler was well he's a character that doesn't seem to change much across the course of the film but and he's in no doubt that Hal and Sal the computer back on earth are intelligent and self-aware but he loses his certainty you know he's quite he's quite happy to tell Sal that yes of course you will direct but then there's something about the whole mission that they go through and he's yeah at the end it's the fact that he's lost that certainty and he suddenly can't tell Hal
0: I think it's more that he's lying to Sal, but he's honest that? with Hal. That he Listen, he yeah. gains a greater appreciation of the limitations of the artificial intelligence uh. that he can't just lie to it like a,
1: a child like you like would yeah. a child.
0: There's no uh, that you know, you've you've gone through this terrible trauma because people lied to you and mm. they expected more than from you than what that which you were physically capable of. So, I'll be honest with you, I don't I don't know if you'll dream. Yeah. I hope so. Yes. Chandra barely makes it back onto the Leonov before they blast off. And as they're on their way, Dave Bowman appears again in the form of voice. Mm, yes, that's it. And he, he talks to Hal. And they have a really nice reconciliation. Yes. So, I don't know it's... Don't, don't worry about what happened, Hal, it's I understand, don't, don't worry about it, but I, there's something that I want to do. For, want you to do for me first. There's a message that I'd like you to send back to Earth. And we only catch the beginning of it. Yes, yeah. But as they're, they're blasting away, the Discovery is exhausted, they unhook, and at that moment, the monoliths completely encapsulate Jupiter. And it detonates into mm. the sun,
1: killing all the cloud aliens. <laughs> well, this is... But that's the thing, that, that, that's part of the point of the book, is that the monolith... I think the idea is that obviously the aliens, or whatever they are, are going through the universe and they are trying to sift out, OK, this race has got potential, this race has not got any potential. And in the case of the, the Jovian system, they've looked at Jupiter and gone, no, these cloud aliens... They're they can't, nice. there's,
0: there's nothing, yeah. there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah,
1: to they they don't, they don't live in a world where they can develop tools or create, they've got no potential, for want of a better word, whereas whatever's on Europa obviously has the potential to do, the same potential that they saw in Mankind at the start of 2001. And obviously the temptation is to say, well, who who made you God? You know. exactly. Well, that's the thing, because...
0: It's it's Clark's law. Mm. In that, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, or effectively from godhood.
1: Yeah. There's another book called *Childhood's
0: End*. Have you? And in fact, briefly, that connection between incredibly powerful aliens and God it ties back to that painting of Christ. Mm. If you imagine that the monolith is God's instrument on Earth, then of course, that's Jesus. I suppose. or Or the cross. Yeah, but childhood's Char-
1: end oh just that in the same way that because that features a race of aliens whose job I think it is to raise mankind to the next level to the overmind but in the process destroying mankind mm. um, it's one of the without going into it in too much detail it's one of the reasons why I don't like childhood's end very much because it's very it's, a, it's an out of characteristicly pessimistic novel from Arthur C. Clarke and that's not I don't read Arthur C. Clarke for pessimism. I read him for books like *Wanderer with Wama* in 2001. I much prefer his his uh, his more technological view of the future.
0: One of the books of his, well, I haven't read many of his books, but the one that I did enjoy was *Islands in the Sky*. Oh yes, it's a lesser-known one. And the
1: it's, space station yeah, one, isn't it? It's yeah. about
0: sort of day-to-day life on a space station in the future. Yeah, and it seems. It's great, yeah. and it's, but it's just like, yeah, they still have offices in space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got a, got a bit sort of run of the mill in some ways, but it's really fascinating yeah. from as it was then
1: a 20th century viewpoint. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, and well, the, the other one of his that I always go back to is uh, called The Fountains of Paradise, which is the uh, a book about the building of a space mm. elevator, and that's again a really good one. Mm. And again, it weirdly at the end it features a race of powerful quite powerful aliens that, that turn up, um, but they kind of turn up at a point when humanity is in a better position to deal with this, the unexpected arrival of powerful aliens. So it doesn't have the same impact that it does in 2010 or Childhood's End. Um, but yeah, it is that... So, yeah, it's, so yes, the, the, the nice cloud aliens on Ju- Jupiter go foom, but the chlorophyll <laughs> aliens on Europa get a second chance.
0: Yeah. And... As the blast wave uh, spreads out, the Leonov is rattled about a bit, mm. but the Discovery is annihilated, and Hal dies.
1: Yes. All becomes... Because, again, that's then picked up in 2063, yes, isn't it, I think?
0: Yes, that, yeah. um, in fact, Hal and Dave Oman have merged into a single entity.
1: Yes. Which may or may not be part of the monolith. I mean, it's, that's all... I,
0: but I think it's... It's not part of the monolith, but mm. it's sort of working alongside. So because in, in 3001, the expectation is that the signal that was sent out a thousand years earlier, is the, the, the reply will come back about oh. whether or not humanity will be allowed to continue.
1: Wow. And yeah, I really don't remember
0: that at Hellman, all. Halman, as it's being referred to by them, helps Frank Poole and other people of humanity sabotage the system to separate themselves from the influence of the monolith, and in the process, Halman is i think locked in It's locked inside the monolith, Ooh, monolith yeah
1: I don't it's funny isn't it i don't remember don't remember that at all so
0: he so he he winds up taking humanity's side against hmm. the aliens because they don't know what the aliens are going to do well
1: exactly yeah i
0: think and by by the thirtieth century, humanity's actually doing reasonably well yeah there's there's one weird bit where. Um, Frank Paul's being revived and sort of medically examined, and everyone in the future is horrified by his mutilation in inverted commas because he's um, uh, circumcised. Oh, right. <laughs>
1: and because he's circumspect. Well, yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, it's quite a short book. But yeah.
1: Is well, it 3001 where the Jupiter's starting to go out because yes. it's obviously not a long term sun? It doesn't have much in the way of fuel, yeah. No,
0: I mean, that makes me wonder. Well, that people, you know, whatever's evolved on Europa, they've only had a thousand, they've had less than a thousand years. Mm. I mean, you need longer
1: than that. Yes, I suppose. Uh, and not not being that familiar with that end of the the series of books, I wonder whether the presumably the implication is that the monolith itself that's on Europa is speeding the process up or something. Mm. It must be because it goes well as we see in the in the closing stages of the film. It goes from icy waste to a tropical jungle relatively quickly well I think that's well, it's uh, just passage uh, of time, yeah, is, passage of time yeah. I mean, I'd assume that
0: uh, in isolation you can imagine that takes mm. thousands of years but the we see the message that was sent by Hal and Dave Bowman and it's all these worlds are yours except Europa, attempt no landings there, hmm. use them together use them in peace and that last little bit use them together, use them in peace was written in by Peter Hines. really yeah. okay
1: he, good really, he just
0: really wants to punch that yeah. bit with you know earth getting close to nuclear wars just underline that and the, <laughs> the film ends with another bit of voiceover which is very Kubrickian in this way because he loved his voiceover
1: I did did he I, I, not, in,
0: not in 2001 it's probably the only one which doesn't have yeah, much right. voiceover but in all his other movies voiceover is a running thing okay uh Clockwork Orange, for example.
1: Uh, you know that's the one of his I haven't seen.
0: Oh, it's his best film. Ah, okay. Um, uh, Full Metal Jacket, Barry Lyndon. Yes, of course. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Barry yeah. Lyndon's narrated by Michael Horden, I think. Hmm. Uh, Lolita.
1: Again, haven't haven't seen that. Again, movie, that's a, yeah.
0: that's, it's it's um, Peter Sellers.
1: I just wasted another Peter Sellers being weird and creepy movie. I just wasted all my time just watching slightly. The Shining. <laughs> I've got this great theory about him faking the moon landings. Uh, he didn't. Oh, I okay. can. Oh, well. It's not true. In fact, I think. Because you, well, um, you and
0: I met up a few days ago yes. uh, and got uh, ship mm. Um I got home after one o'clock on a school night.
1: <laughs> Outrageous. I've done that for
0: years. Um, but I th- did, did we talk about Peter Sellers? I think we did. We
1: did very, very briefly, yeah. And
0: did I mention a film called The Blockhouse?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: It's um, it was a Peter Sellers film that I'd always wanted to see, and it seems to be by far his darkest and most serious film because he did do a few straight dramatic movies, mm. not many, and it was during that period from the late '60s to the early '70s where he couldn't get arrested.
1: Yeah,
0: and he made this film called The Blockhouse, which is about a group of um, slave workers, French slave workers in um, German-occupied Normandy. just as D-Day is happening and they come under bombardment from the Allies they scramble for safety and cover and a bunch of them including Seller's character hide out in a, a supply bunker but there's a direct hit on it and the entrance is caved in so this seven or so characters are buried alive inside this supply bunker where there are thousands of candles, food and drink
1: to last them for years but it's a tomb Wow! I haven't ever. I can't. It was on TV yesterday. Wow! I can't even imagine Peter Sellers being in a film like that. I know it's and the the worst part
0: when I was reading about this before. It's a true story. Um, about six years later. This is. This, some, this already doesn't sound
1: like it's going to end well.
0: Six years later, when they were clearing um, emplacements mm. on the on the coast they found this place and they opened it up and of the seven people five were dead two were still alive and it was believed they, they had spent the last two years living in total darkness wow. one of them died of shock as Oops. soon as he came out to the daylight and other died the following day
1: good grief I'm gonna to have to track this one down now because it's late. out on DVD and yeah. it's upon
0: movies for men. Oh right. In well, of the course, Family Friendly Time Slot of twelve noon on a Saturday. Yeah. Because that's the kind of movie you want to watch over lunch. Yes. Hmm. I just thought it was because I only spotted it, it was on TV the day before it was, I thought no. I've wanted to see this movie for years and suddenly it <laughs> yes, landed maybe. in my lap.
1: Yeah.
0: But the uh yes, we have a, a concluding voiceover by Floyd. Uh, sending another Electric letter mm. to his son, and rather sweetly, is that they're preparing to go back into hibernation for the, the journey home. And um, Floyd and the, the Russian captain Helen Mirren have a, a hug before they mm. they go off. I thought, well, oh, that's rather nice. That's it's symbolic of yeah. you know, the evolution of the relationship between the two countries and also the characters that yeah. become friends. And there, there is a certain uh, tension between them early in the movie. And I thought maybe a certain romantic tension, in a way. Even though, yeah. you know, it's, they, they actually have a conversation just to, to, to talk about their families, and that that she's married and they have a child, and he's hmm. a doctor. I think it said, and oh like, and that because you said that. Floyd talks about his. That's family. right. Yeah, yeah. So there was that sort of relaxation of tensions between them. But yeah, they, you know, they they sort hmm. of hug good night, as it were.
1: I'm not sure how much of this the the aliens have planned. I mean, obviously they planned the detonation of Jupiter to give the Western Europa a chance. I'm not sure whether they have in some way manipulated events on Earth to also bring humanity to the brink so that the sudden detonation of Jupiter going off can remind people on Earth. It's... I'm, I think it's Bowman's influence. Yeah, it could Bowman, actually Bowman, that would make more
0: sense. Yeah. Bowman is an independent operator.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, who has 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 the powers endowed in, in him by the aliens, but he can flit about as, mm-hmm. as he as he pleases. And the message is his. Yes. M- yeah, that's true, say, it is, well, isn't it? Yeah. The aliens are the, Europa is the, under their protection. But the rest of it mm. that's yours because now all these other planets are open to you. Because of the because of the light from Lucifer, as it's called, in the, book, yes, yeah. the 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 converted Jupiter. So Bowman is, I think, doing more to help than yes, yeah. Because he's he was human. Mm. He can he can think on their level. He can remember being human, whereas the aliens are so far beyond yeah. humanity. We're not even like insects to them. Yes, yeah, yeah. And we we have that that wonderfully cheesy montage of all the monuments of the world with the twin yes, suns yeah. in the sky so we say, oh yes it, yeah, they have the same suns all over the world Yeah, the Eiffel Tower uh, Tower Bridge um, yes I that, forget what the observation thing
1: they're building in Brighton <laughs> I forget yeah and it's
0: I mean it's, it's an odd suit, it's I can see it's it's doing it on like the the blockbuster level. It's explaining it visually to the audience, but in very simple, cliché terms. Yeah. To make sure that you get it. Whilst his voiceover is has kind of like I think one day the children of the old and new sons will meet, and I think they'll be friends.
1: Good luck with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, with the weird jungle creatures that are going to evolve on Europa. Hmm. Because then we have the final scene on, on the surface of Europa is that the climate changes and finally it's a jungle. And the camera pans across sideways until we see the monolith. And then the alsace braxel just comes up again and then it cuts to black. And it's, it mirrors the start of 2001, of course, with, yeah. the, with the monolith now influencing life on Europa. I think overall it's. A, an effective sequel. It's a good continuation of the story. And as you say, it doesn't diminish no. the the mysticism and the intellectualism of the original, but it makes it much more accessible to an audience. Yeah. I don't think it's a great movie.
1: It's good. It's never Yeah it's good. good. It's it's good it's it's a good solid film. No, it's not it's not great. I think it it gets overlooked for, uh, for a lot of reasons it's genuinely got some of the best special effects sequences yeah, it's had in very, any I, f- mean,
0: I believe Oscar nominated I had, um, had a
1: number of Oscar only on, nominated. only um, <laughs> nominated
0: um, well I mean you had Ghostbusters I had suppose so e- Ghostbusters yeah. had great effects Indian uh, you know, the Temple of Doom yeah they were, I mean it was a big blockbuster It was special a, effects era and that's when it yeah. even started I would say
1: 1984 but yeah I know what you mean though it's not But it's it's not a it's not. It's. It's not a classic film, I and mean, it's for whatever reason. It's fallen through the cracks. But yeah, it's. It's. It's really. It's a good, solid film, mm. and. It's not better than two thousand and one, <laughs> but it's easier to watch.
0: Oh yes, it's much more. Dig- it's much more digestible for a general audience. Yeah, and it doesn't skimp on the intelligence. stuff, no. I don't think. Yeah, it's. It shouldn't. Be relegated to the, the backwater of cinema history mm. that it seemingly has. It, that it, it's so much better than you could reasonably have expected mm. it to be, given what it's working with. It's a great shame. Yeah. Uh, scour your junk shops. Scour mm. your charity shops. Scour your jumble sales. Yeah. And write to Arrow Video and say, this movie should at the very least have the screen the right shape. <laughs> yes, that would be... So that you can watch it without squinting.
1: That would definitely be a start.
0: 1904 uh, was actually a good year for science fiction at the Oscars because Jeff Bridges was Oscar nominated for Starman. Oh, OK. And it's the only time anyone's been Oscar nominated for playing an alien.
1: i have to take your word on that. I think
0: it's because they didn't know which category to put the monolith in.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. And the acceptance speech would have been awkward.
0: <laughs> yeah, um back to the whole um, you
1: know, puny alphabet <laughs> <laughs> so you're, as you is all these worlds are <laughs> and the, the inevitable um, awkward red carpet interview on the way in and the questions about what he's wearing who are you wearing <laughs> <Ooh>. mankind
0: <laughs> thanks to Chris Ansby for making the time for this podcast Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with over a dozen episodes available so please do subscribe download and review before your boss gets back. We're also available on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, for any suggestions or messages, or if it's anything of a more personal nature, at j underscore j underscore phillips, with two L's. However, until next time, look behind you. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, Hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com.